The small things add up every single day. Like being in a room where you have prepared materials for the entire meeting and everyone else is getting eye contact except for you. Standing around with a number of executives and everyone who you've not yet met assumes that you are an assistant or a junior team member. It's the small things that break down your confidence every single day. My name is Ashlyn Gentry and I'm a modern minority. Welcome to Modern Minorities. This is a show about work and life told through the lens of what makes each of us different. I'm Sharon Lee Tony, a Chinese-American girl born and raised in New York City. And I'm Roman Segal, an Indian-American boy who came from Alabama with a banjo on my knee. Through conversations with some really interesting people, we uncover the stories, perspectives, and often unspoken truths about how our guests uniquely experience the world. It doesn't matter where you're from, the color of your skin, or who you love. We're all minorities somehow but we're no one's model minority. This is a show about all of you, for all of us. On today's show, we're talking to Ashlyn Gentry, co-founder and managing partner at Attention Capital. Ashlyn is a renegade academic and political wonk turned business strategy who has a PhD. (laughs) She has this reputation for like operating quick through bureaucracy and just getting results. What's really interesting, Sharon, is I've kind of met her on the New York tech scene before the kind of crazy happened. And honestly, I was asking her opinion about what I should do with these podcasts before we even launched them. So she's pretty cool. She's great. She was great. And I like how she just, she kind of cuts to the chase. She was just really, I I think she's so open and so loving. And yet I think at the same time, like she's, you know, just very matter of fact as well. It's kind of a nice balance of both things. Well, after we finished recording, we were, you know, chatting, uh, talking about life and stuff because she's about to have a kid, probably be born as of this airing. Yeah. But I said something and she totally called me out for it. And I was like, oh my God, that's cool. Thank you. And she's like, well, I only do it to people I like. I was like, ah, you like us. That's cool. (laughs) (laughs) Tough love. It's like that tough love, right? Yeah. She gave a lot of great advice about mentorship and, you know, how important it is to, to kind of have foster those relationships, but also how important it is to give back as well to folks that are, are coming up and coming to you as someone who's more senior for advice and other things. And so I feel like she mentored me a little bit on the show during our discussion. And I really appreciated that about yeah, her. You guys are you guys are both going to move to LA and be like BFFs, I bet. Totally. She articulated something that I've long held, but I never like had the articulation. It's this idea of treat the CEO like the janitor. Mm-hmm. And it's not this idea of disrespect. It's treat everyone like a human being. Like right. you don't have to like pander and suck up to this person. If you treat them like a human everything else will kind of play out of that. And that's, this is like people first. You can tell that's just like a belief to her kind of style of radical candor, which yeah. is really cool and refreshing. Yeah. Also worth mentioning is she mentors some really important organizations. So the Pitch Academy coaches a ton of female and minority entrepreneurs and Sky's the Limit helps entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs like basically pitch themselves more clearly and confidently. So definitely two organizations worth checking out if, if you dig some of the stuff that Ashlyn talks about. She's essentially just a rock star and a superwoman, right? Like, she's kind of got it all together, I think. She's strong. She's confident. She's funny. She made a really good dad joke towards the end of the show. So definitely stay tuned for that. And it was a pleasure having her with us. Yeah, so enough talking about how awesome she is. (laughs) Why don't you hear our conversation with Ashley? 
Ashlyn, thank you so much for coming on the pod. How are you doing today? My pleasure. It's a thrill to be here. I'm doing well. I'm in sunny Las Vegas. Sunny might be an understatement. I think it's one in 10 today. <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> I've heard it's a little bit different in Las Vegas than it is in New York right now. Much different. Yeah. We have more cases than New York. (laughs) Oh, man. Well, look, Ashlyn, I think a lot of people might have already heard of you. I think you're kind of infamous in our industry. And we don't have to talk too much about that. But I think what most people don't know about you is who you are outside of all that. So can you maybe tell us a story from you growing up? Yeah. So I grew up in Las Vegas, which is, you know, in Nevada, which is a swing state. And because we were a swing state, we got a ton of attention from presidential candidates. And because of that, I quickly grew an interest in politics, particularly political communications, because I loved listening to presidential speeches. And that love sort of uprooted my entire upbringing. And it just took hostage of me. Every academic pursuit was surrounded by that. I was in debate in high school and oratory. It just kind of all coalesced around presidential speech. So I ended up getting a master's and a PhD in political communications, studying that. I thought that I wanted to run campaigns and write speeches for the rest of my life. But after a while, working in politics can jade you. And I decided (laughs) this isn't for me anymore. But I had this incredible wealth of experience running campaigns and writing speeches. And I thought there's got to be a way that I can translate this to business. So yeah, I I kind of moved on from political consulting and and shifted into business consulting. So a question, I talked to all my doctor friends, they're like, Scrubs is the most accurate doctor show. More recently, I've discovered Never Have I Ever is the most accurate Indian American show. I mean, it can't be all Aaron Sorkin, West Wing. That's not the most accurate. <laughs> like, what is it? The second you started asking that question, I knew where you were going. And of course, Aaron Sorkin came to mind. It really is. I mean, the best of the best days are the walk and talks through West Wing. The worst days are more like House of Cards. There is a ton of manipulation, a lot of lying, a lot of game playing. I learned what game theory is from a very young age because you can't really survive in that environment unless you learn which people to trust, which conversations to be wary of. It's all prisoner's dilemma every day. Exactly. So yeah, it was an interesting way to learn how people operate on a team in a high stakes environment. And I mean, if that's not what business is, Lord knows what is. Did you always want to I mean, it sounds like you grew up a political wong, so you always knew you wanted to do that and just go into that space. Yeah, I think the the first time that I really took notice of a president speaking, I think was in 1996, DNC, the convention, and Bill Clinton gave a speech about building a bridge to the 21st century. And... I was up late because I had to submit a first draft for our sixth grade oratorical contest. And I hadn't finished the conclusion. And I just like plopped that in there, that metaphor of a bridge. And I ended up winning the oratory contest. And I think that solidified for me. Speech is powerful. There are a ton of policies and a lot of ideas, but unless you couch them in the right prose and make them persuasive, those policies die on the floor. All right. So when we first met, I was getting started with podcasts. And I just wanted your opinion. Because I actually, the first time we met, found out you're a podcast nerd like me. <laughs> and I think we compared a lot of Pod Save American. It's the second time we met and actually talked work. I told you about these podcasts I was working on. And you challenged me and you said, hey, if you're going to go for the other podcast where I talk to like executives and mentorship chats, you were like, okay, you need to ask harder questions. And you were like, you need to ask 
specifically women, what's it like being around the table? And one of the first female executives I interviewed for the podcast was Meg Whitman. And my co-host actually asked the question about being around the table. And she actually said her political experience gave her more of an awakening to being a female than her business experience. But you've kind of gone the other way around the boardroom, people's perception of you. Can you unpack that a little bit about why'd you ask me to ask that question? Because it's clearly rooted in something you've experienced. I definitely experienced that in politics, but I think politics is a safer space because it's very easy to come across as a hypocrite if you're going to run your campaign without being inclusive of women and minorities and then go out there and espouse policies that support those groups. Oh yeah. No politician survives being like that. Right. I'm being sarcastic. Yeah. So so in business, those are things you can get away with. And the curtain is a little bit more closed because so few people are in on those meetings. Private companies. Yeah. Yeah. So few people are at those tables. So few people are flies on the wall who get to understand what it's like to be in those rooms, let alone at the tables themselves. So I think politics was a nice stepping stone to get me prepared for what it was like to be in those rooms. It taught me to speak up when I disagree. It taught me to feel comfortable working with a team and sort of translating back and forth between your principal, which is the candidate, and your teams. And those are all skills that are necessary in business. And I know you have a story or some advice that you typically give to people and women in particular about dealing with male CEOs. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So this, (laughs) this story came about when I kept hearing, there was this point in time, maybe two years ago, when I kept hearing this meme of treat the janitor like the CEO. And I was like, yes, obviously, if you're a good human, you would treat the janitor with the same respect that you would treat the CEO. Yeah. But I kept hearing from women who would want advice about, you know, how do I position myself in a boardroom? How do I speak with my boss? How do I charm and disarm an executive? And I thought, you know, why don't I flip this on its head? The problem with so many folks, and this is folks of all genders, when they meet an executive, they think that the way to charm and disarm is to kiss ass and suck up. What I have found is exactly the opposite. The most respect I've ever been garnered from CEOs, mostly clients that I've worked with, is when I have mimicked their body language, their speaking style, it's like slight jabs every now and then, like just quippy, making them feel comfortable, cracking jokes, maybe subtle insults, but nothing that goes too far, just all in good humor, just letting them feel like they're a human for a second. Yeah. So what that has turned into is a tagline that I've never written down on paper because it tends to be misconstrued when it's on paper. But it's advice that I've given a lot of mentees that I've worked with, which is treat the CEO like the janitor. You know, treat that person with the utmost respect, just like you would anyone else, but recognize at the end of the day, they're human, they have to make really important choices. And the best choices that they're going to make are will be informed by your honest observations of what's happening on the ground. So don't be a yes woman or man. Don't suck up. Just treat them like they are a colleague that you have a ton of respect for. I love that because I've never been able to articulate it. But that's kind of been my approach. It's I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what your title is. We both got in this room somehow, right? And relate to people as a human being first. And then the rest will work. I mean, you're, in theory, your skills and your accomplishments will sort itself out. Exactly. I 100% agree. I also think that 
in many ways that builds a lot of trust as well, because you're just being you, you're just being Ashlyn. You're not trying to pretend to be somebody else. And I think when someone is used to everyone around them kind of sucking up or putting on a face or trying to have that external, I guess, sort of like putting on a role or or lying in some ways, having that is very, very refreshing. So I think that's super. Especially for women, because women unproportionately experience imposter syndrome. And I think doing anything you can to make yourself feel like you belong in that room will improve your performance in the room. Yeah. Were you always this confident? (laughs) Confident? No. (laughs) Assertive? Yes. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Tell us how the assertiveness kind of gave you the confidence to be where you are today. That's a great question. Surely some of it has to come from my upbringing and my parents and my siblings. I'm the firstborn, so I think that's innate a little bit. But I think... There are a ton of people that I've spoken to living in New York who were raised with advice from parents who understood how the world really works. Mm-hmm. They understand what it means to go to an IV. They understand what an internship means for the rest of your career. They teach you how to network. They help you get clothes that are tailored. There are so many advantages that a lot of people have. I didn't really have that because growing up on the West Coast, things are a little bit more lax. You don't really get inundated with that sort of East Coast elitism. And I don't mean that in a pejorative way. I I mean that in the sense that you get exposed to a lot of things earlier than the rest of the country and you learn a lot of lessons from parents and their colleagues earlier than you would elsewhere. So on the West Coast, I kind of had to learn those lessons on my own. And it's funny, you brought up Aaron Sorkin. A lot of those lessons I learned from watching TV, reading biographies about leaders, kind of putting together different pieces about how the world worked. And one of the quickest lessons I learned was if you are a woman, there are challenges you're going to have to overcome that your male colleagues will not. And in doing so, I think I started to mimic a lot of male behaviors that I saw. Like what? So for example, if you're in a room, a lot of men start speaking over each other in order to get their point across. So I think that taught me to stand up and speak up when I know that something needs to be said. I'm not advocating for that approach (laughs) now. (laughs) Years and years into my career, I don't do that anymore. But it gets you comfortable. Other things like not apologizing, there's so much research indicating that women apologize so much more often than men. And it's often because men don't feel the things that they have done require an apology, where those same exact things women do feel require an apology. So one thing that I've adopted is instead of saying, I'm sorry, I'll say my apologies because I feel like it's a less personal comment. It's more it's it's, more passive. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, there are a number of little tips and tricks that I learned along the way. But I think when you force yourself into a room and you just have to figure it out, women will pick up cues from their male colleagues. And that's what I did. And that's why I think that more aggressive approach took place because that's really the only way that I had been exposed to learning these lessons. Now, as time went on, I got to know myself as a business executive a little bit more and started mitigating that with how I want to be perceived and how I feel most comfortable acting. But at the very get-go, if the only leaders that you have to look up to are men, you're going to act like them. I think it's we've been talking on the show with other guests about the idea of privilege. And obviously, it's in the lexicon more now than it was a few months ago. 
But conversations like this where I recognize my own privilege. And for example, like I have an older sister. We're pretty similar in terms of accomplishment in very different fields. And when she was coming up, I think through med school or residency, I think she genuinely likes college football, but she learned about football so she could talk about it at parties and kind of crack the boys club versus I am what I call a fake sports fan. I don't want to talk about football. I'd rather talk about Star Wars or comic books or podcasts, but I don't have to. I can get away with being football ignorant because of my male privilege And whereas my sister had to use football as a means of a way in to crack the code. And I just, I remember when she was getting into it, I was like, why do you care about football? I don't care about football. And she had to. Have there been things, I guess you talk a lot about being super authentic and you found the tips and tricks to wedge in, but have there been things that you've had to do to kind of wedge in that you didn't want to have to do? Your quote unquote football or Star Wars or whatever it might've been? Yeah, I have been exposed to a lot of situations where I knew that I was going to miss out unless I learned about that thing. I have elected to not wedge in, but I'll give you some examples of things that I have seen where I did feel excluded. So for example, golf outings on Sunday. (laughs) (laughs) I don't play golf. If I wanted to learn, if I wanted to feel like I could fit in and get invited to these these Sunday golf outings, I would have to put in the resources, the time and money to learn how to play golf. There are plenty of men I know who feel the same way, mind you, and have put in those time and resources. But as an individual, regardless of your gender, you have to decide for yourself if the social environments that business is conducted in are so prevalent that you need to make that investment. I flipped that though, Ashlyn, because it's like, I don't want to learn how to play golf. I never do, right? <laughs> yeah. And I've made that choice. And I tried. I took a golf course at night once to do it. And I was like, fuck this. I'd rather, this is going to sound weird, I'd rather seek out the other weirdo in the room. The one who does have a strong opinion on the other weird stuff. Because yeah. I can make a stronger connection of us versus the world. Yeah, I think most introverts, and I, I consider myself an introvert, most yeah, introverts same. would do that. However, you will miss out on so many business making opportunities by electing not to be there. The thing that bugs me, look, if someone says to me, we're going to have this golf outing on Sunday, we want you to come. I have the option to say yes or no, even if I'm not going to be golfing. The thing that bugs me is when those activities are hidden from you. Yep. So if they're not on the calendar, if nobody is talking about them in front of you, if you see a lot of whispering going on, women's intuition is real. Like I've found out about so many poker nights or cigar nights or whiskey tasting nights that happened without me knowing. And those are the ones that are offensive. The thing that I will say is when you find out that those are happening, you have to voice your opinion about being excluded immediately because your actions teach people how to treat you. And if folks feel like they can get away without inviting you to those events and they feel comfortable excluding you, they're not going to stop until you say something. Yeah. If you see something, say something. Yeah. And so, I mean, I'm just curious because I've I've actually never called that out myself. How would you approach that? Do you go to the person that organized the event? And what's that conversation like? Yeah. So for example, if it's a poker night, you can say... Hey, I know that you had a poker night. I know the buy-in is really high. Next time, I would love to be invited. I'm willing to pay the buy-in. I don't know a ton about poker, but I really want to hang out with you guys and learn. The thing that I have found is more successful 
is approaching each individual about each individual case rather than taking something to somebody's attention and saying, you are part of this systemic problem. (laughs) (laughs) Because then it's more of a conversation between two individuals rather than this person feeding into the patriarchy. (laughs) Well, well, the way you articulated it was a very human one. It was, hey, I want to be part of this. And it's like, you can't say no. You literally framed it in such a way that you can't say, if I said no to that, I'm the asshole. Totally. (laughs) Yeah. You you actually said, I want to spend time with you, right? Those were your words. So yeah. And I recognize it's really difficult for a lot of women to act humbly and let down their guard and release a little bit of that ego to show that you're vulnerable and you do want to participate. But you have to weigh that against the loss of not being there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's such good advice. And I love the way you framed it as well, because it is a way to be vulnerable while being assertive. And I, right. I, I like that mix of things. Can hey, you Sharon, be my, I, want, I want Ashlyn to be my mentor. <laughs> <laughs> sure. <laughs> well, you all, this whole mentor. podcast was just one long con for, for you to make that. Yeah, ask. exactly. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Let's do it. I'm down. <laughs> no, Perfect. but Sharon, I want to actually ask you yeah. compare a lot of notes on air and off air. You're a female co-founder, right? You've yeah. seen some success. You've risen through the ranks. What's been your experience? I hear you asking guests a lot about their experience, but what have some of your situations been? I know. It's, like, it's funny because as, as Ashlyn, you were talking about it, you've come up in extremely male-dominated environments, I think. And, and in some ways, I have too, but the whiskey tastings and the cigar parties, either they're happening and I've just never even known about it. Like maybe I've just completely been so off the grid that it wasn't even part of my, it wasn't even on my radar that I wasn't being invited. Or I think, so I think a couple of things. I think my perspective has been, I'm a co-founder or I'm a founder because I always knew that I wanted to create a company my way, right? And so things obviously weren't working. And I think I was definitely in, in situations where there weren't a lot of female executives in the companies where I was working. There weren't a lot of people of color in executive roles. And so in the very beginning of my career, I definitely felt as if I didn't fit in or it wasn't for me, or maybe I wasn't meant to work in corporate. A lot of questions around that. And I think as I've risen through the ranks, it's been a little bit of definitely finding allies, supporters, mentors that can help you to get ahead, either socially or not, right? Because there is that, I mean, implicitly, it's this you're going to a whiskey tasting. But the other thing is you have to maybe enjoy whiskey or at least enjoy drinking or not have an issue being around alcohol. There's a lot of social things involved in interactions like that too, that kind of impact whether one, you feel like you belong in the room, but secondly, how people then respond to you. And I think what I've found is kind of like you, Raman, I find the people in the room that I can naturally connect to. So if it's people that really like yoga and, hey, I like yoga, let's go take a yoga class one day after work together. Or, hey, there's this really new, great, whatever, salad place down the block or French food place or whatever it might be. And to kind of bond over those commonalities. But it's never been so overt for me from a male versus female perspective in that way, just because I think a lot of the agencies where I worked, a lot of the marketing companies where I worked, it wasn't like that. It, it just, that line wasn't as firm or really I could have just been so on the fringe that I had no idea this was even happening. People probably were going golfing every Sunday and I just was never invited. Ashlyn, I want to ask you another question. So you're in the field of venture, right? Venture capital, investing in startups and companies, and you have the interesting 
perspective of being both the majority and the minority in a lot of cases, right? You're white, but you're a female, right? Sorry, that sounded terrible. (laughs) (laughs) I understand what you mean. No offense taken. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. Wow. This show makes me woke. No, you straddle the line of being the majority, right? On paper, even. And you've talked about people just assume you're straight and all those. But my ask is this. We've had a couple of VCs on the show. We've had a couple of startup entrepreneurs on the show. As someone who sits on both sides of the, not the business table, but the identity table, kind of, what do you see that's different? I feel like you almost have, it's not quite imposter, but you have this insider view of someone who's a a minority. You know what I mean? What are you seeing? What are you hearing? And more importantly, what would you go tell an entrepreneur walking into a room full of white men or an entrepreneur walking into a room full of men or a gay entrepreneur walking into a room full of a bunch of straight assuming folks? How do you see the world? Because I think you have just such an interesting perspective. Yeah, what I see. What I'd first say is my experience is kind of unique because we sort of straddle the line between VC and and private equity. So we see these startups that are just setting out to achieve their dreams. We also see companies that have been around for a while that are trying to take the next step in their growth skill. In both cases, I have seen a ton of female entrepreneurs not be taken seriously because they lack whatever skills the investor deems necessary. Most of the time, I would say those women have those skills. They just haven't had enough experience to figure out how to articulate them correctly. I feel like there are so many more resources available to men to understand what you have to say in that room and how you have to act in that room in order to get an investor's attention. There's a wonderful group I work with called the Pitch Academy out of Austin, Texas that prepares entrepreneurs for those investor conversations. It's really it comes back to just public speaking. It comes back to figuring out a way to articulate who you are and what you're asking for in a way that's compelling. And unfortunately, I think there's some systematic issues where men feel like they have access to those conversations. They have access to those investors. They know exactly what to say more than their female counterparts. So I will say that. My personal experience being a white woman is that I have been privileged enough to be in rooms that many other folks have not. And I recognize that. As a woman, specifically, I still feel, I wouldn't say discriminated against. I've never, luckily, never been sexually harassed. I've never experienced overt sexist behavior myself. But the small things add up every single day. It's the small things Being in a room where you have prepared materials for the entire meeting for everyone to discuss and everyone else on your team is getting eye contact from the client except for you. Or standing around with a number of executives and everyone who you've not yet met assumes that you are an assistant or a junior junior team member. It's the small things that break down your confidence every single day. And despite the privileges of being white, as a woman, I still face those on a regular basis. What I have gotten more comfortable with is snapping back at those and recalibrating expectations immediately. It is very possible that I feel a level of comfort doing that because I am white. In fact, upon reflection, like I'm, I'm sure of that. So what I can do as a white woman in 
the investing space is every time there's a woman who asks for help is to help her. Or every time there's an investor second guessing a woman's pitch to advocate for her. We have to figure out ways to level the playing field. I don't know if you know this, but female founded companies receive 2% of all VC money in 2018. $130 billion and female founded companies receive 2%. That is a systemic issue. And you have to find out what are the root causes. And I think the root causes are women not feeling like they belong in those rooms, like they're prepared to be in those rooms and therefore like either electing to opt out of those opportunities or just not signing up for them at all. Yeah. I also think that there's maybe not as much now, but certainly... I don't know. That's hard because I feel like I'm I'm a little bit on the older spectrum of things in some ways. But in those moments when a woman is somewhat early in her career, but maybe heading towards management level, so maybe it's between five to seven years, where I feel those are kind of critical years of figuring out what it is that you want to do and where you're kind of finding yourself as a leader. It's usually around that time that she's also thinking about maybe having a family. And I remember being in my late 20s, I wasn't even close to getting married yet at the time, but already planning my future. You know what I mean? Like, I'm like, I've got two kids and I've got a husband and and all of that and kind of like looking ahead at what the next 10 years of my career would have been. And I had moments where I questioned whether or not I would want to be a working mom or if I wanted to maybe just stay at home for a couple of years with my kids because I had some idea in my head that maybe I'd have to choose one or the over the other or to off-ramp for a while and then come back on. And I think... Where did that idea come from, Sharon? It's funny. Some of it may have just been from my own upbringing. So my mom was a stay-at-home mom for most of my childhood. But I actually feel like a lot of it was probably just societal. I think we romanticize what it's like to to, to be a mother. and, And then there's a lot of just pressure around how much time you're spending with your kids or what constitutes being a good mom versus a bad mom. And and there's a whole mom guilt thing that happens. And, and I personally had seen firsthand how some women, some pretty senior women that I had worked with really struggled sometimes with balancing that out, working at companies where we'd have to be in the office for long hours and just watching them have to sometimes make hard decisions around, well, do do they miss the Christmas performance of their child or do they stay back and keep working on a pitch? And I think kind of seeing that firsthand made me wonder if I ever wanted to put myself in a position where I'd have to choose in that way. And I do see a lot of women, it's the whole Sheryl Sandberg thing of like leaning in, right? I have myself seen a lot of women opting themselves out even before they have to for any real reason. Like literally, I was thinking about this And I don't even think I may have been in a relationship at the time, but I certainly wasn't at a point where I was ready to to settle down and have children. But I was already in my mind making calculations that would impact the next 10 or 20 years of my career. I read a statistic the other day that women tend to not apply for a job unless they meet 90% of the qualifications, whereas men will do it if they meet 60%. Yeah. False confidence. Yeah. Yeah. That comes privilege. That comes privilege. And then additionally, I have firsthand seen women get passed over for promotions when they were definitely on the promotion track because they interrupted that track to have a kid. And while they were gone, somebody stepped into that role and either closed a deal or led a turnaround. 
And it's really difficult as a woman to have a conversation with your superiors and say, I want to come back. I want to just pick up where I left off. I need help to find someone to sustain the work that we have been doing for the next few months. But when I come back, I need to know that my role is exactly the same. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I would argue that, I mean, you see all the rankings of where the U.S. fits against these things. But I do think it's almost symptomatic of our American exceptionalism idea. We're number one at some of the worst things, right? And it's kind of like win at all costs, unfettered capitalism, put the right person in the job. There's no allowances for these pauses that I think could solve some of these problems. And as a result, we're not comfortable asking for them because the expectation's been set. So I got to ask you, Ashlyn, like you're about to be a parent. You're about to join the Sharon and Robin Club. Good luck. But with you and your, <laughs> yeah. with you and your wife, how did you enter that calculus? Because everyone makes their own decision about what they're going to do with their life and their career. My wife and I waited a little longer so we could like backpack around and live overseas. But even now, I'm choosing to not go for certain jobs because of the commute, because of the, the travel required. In the spirit of all these decisions that we've talked about, pulling yourself out of the workforce, the anxiety of... How did you and your wife come to this conclusion? Not to have a kid, but how are you approaching everything now? Yeah. So my wife and I, I don't know how unique this is because I think a a lot of millennials feel like this. Maybe I'm wrong. But my wife and I, in our own careers, we have each individually adopted this philosophy that work-life balance doesn't exist and the lines just bleed too much. Integration. Yeah. Yeah. And in some ways it's welcome. I mean, we both enjoy our jobs a ton. So we don't want to create those lines because those lines don't need to exist if you have the right support system to help you reinforce boundaries. So we are both taking a good amount of time off, me less than her. But I think because we are both pretty assertive personalities, we have sort of set those boundaries with the people we work with to say, this is how I want to approach becoming a parent. These are the expectations I have. I need to understand what I'm getting on the other side. Me personally, there are a couple things that I care about, right? My big rocks. My big rocks are continuing to network and continuing to foster I hate the term thought leadership, but thought leadership, like (laughs) articulating, articulating what my beliefs are and sharing those. So when I put those two big rocks on this pedestal of what I need to make sure is maintained and doesn't get sacrificed while I'm taking time off... I had to come up with a plan. So I'm using TweetDeck. I am <laughs> pre-writing articles to release on LinkedIn. I am setting up calendar invites months in advance for people that I know I want to network with. I am using my personal CRM to track those conversations. I am making a proactive effort to stay in touch with the investor and startup and business transformation and private equity networks. And I have no idea how that is going to pan out. <laughs> I have created a plan. But what I hear about parenting is that a lot of... That's goes out the window. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So we'll see how that goes. But it's something that is incredibly important to me. So I've made the proactive effort to create resources for myself and use platforms and tools that will help me get those things done, even while I am raising a newborn. 
Yeah. Ashlyn, you had me at personal CRM as a spreadsheet. <laughs> I know. Oh, my God. I want to know, like, offline, off mic, I'm going to ask what your personal CRM is. You are so organized. I think that the system that you've built so far is probably, it, it's going to work. Even though I, I can tell you firsthand that parenting is probably the most unexpected adventure you're ever going to be on. It's highly fulfilling and and everyone's right. Even if you make your best laid plans, it's all going to change. But one thing I have learned is when it comes to balancing career and family, if you're super clear on the things that you really want to hang on to and that you're prioritizing, you'll find a way to make it happen. I think even for myself, I remember, so right before I had my my first child, I found myself talking to a working mom and she had, and in my mind, she had figured it all out. Like she had this really flexible schedule. She was able to work remotely a couple times a week and she was just happy like all the time. And it just seemed like she had really found the balance. And I had spoken to her and I was, what's the secret? How do you do this? And she had said, well, she made her list of what was the most important to her. And she made a commitment to not sacrifice those things. And for her, it was having the time and the flexibility to spend, to be there for the important moments. And so being able to negotiate with her employer, the hours that she'd be in the office, the hours that she'd be on the premises, the hours that she was able to work from home, she had negotiated how much or how little travel she was willing to take in the first six months and then the first year and kind of slowly coming back to to being able to travel as much as she, she did before she had a baby. And I was like, oh, that sounds nice. But not everyone's going to be open to that. And she had said, Sharon, you have to remember that if you go into a room and you're negotiating a job, she she had said, you're probably going to be negotiating for a pay rate that's higher than what you're making now, which means that in many ways, you're saying to yourself that I will not accept anything below this amount. And I was like, you're right. She goes, if you walked into a job today, would you take the whatever it was, $30,000 that you got paid the first year out of college? I was like, never again, never going to do that again. And she had said, well, that's the same thing as being a working parent. You have to go into the room and know that you're never going to accept working in the office for 100 hours for the week nonstop, or you're not going to accept having to travel for three months straight without seeing your family. She's like, you, you set those boundaries. And you're able to then operate within those parameters. And that's what's going to help you to find that balance. So I think your personal CRM is going to be the key to your success. (laughs) (laughs) Hearing you talk about that, Sharon, it really makes me appreciative of other professional women who have good advice. It sounds like you and I both had some pretty strong female mentors. And I think the most important thing about finding a female mentor is finding someone who is removed enough from the people that you work with so that you can trust them to ask the stupid questions and get the great advice and trust that those questions are never going to be repeated to anybody else. And I think there's just a level of comfort with, as a woman, finding a female mentor. There's this unspoken bond of, I'm never going to screw you over. I'm never going to throw you under the bus. I'm never going to make you look or feel stupid. Yep, absolutely. And I think that's one of those things where I feel like women sometimes have a hard time determining how to find a mentor or where to find a mentor. What's some advice you'd give to people of where can they find a mentor? Are mentors folks that they can kind of meet on their own? Or is there some kind of magic to figuring out who's going to be a good match for you as a mentor? That's a great question. So there definitely are some organizations that are in place on the high end, chief, the wing, on the low end. I mean, you can just Google 
free online mentoring, and there are a ton of resources that match folks. But if you really want to target someone who you think is a good fit, you have to do the research. You have to start reading books about different executives. You have to start reading executive bios. You have to start reading the news to figure out who's in charge of what companies, who's doing stuff that's interesting to you. And then craft a narrative for yourself and do cold outreach. I will absolutely read any email that comes into my inbox from a female potential mentee. And I think most women feel the same way about potential female mentees. There's just such a lack of support generally that when somebody asks you for help, not only do you feel beholden to like help out the greater good, but you know that you're going to get something from it as well. I would caution a lot of folks though from drafting up pretty cut and dry copy paste type emails like you really need to articulate why this person and why you you have to become a master of creating that narrative yeah yeah and i think i'd add to that too and i think that even women that have made it right or who are more seasoned and senior in their careers can still have the opportunity to meet mentors or to find a mentor i think that at some point Folks feel like, well, you know, I've, I've already seen all that or like, hey, I'm the CEO of my own company. But I think there's always an opportunity to find folks that can answer questions for you, like you said, or kind of get you to that next level. So I totally well, I think it's sometimes I sometimes think it's the other way around, even as I we're all getting older, right? Reverse mentorship is a thing. It's not a buzzword. It's I'm older and more distant from certain perspectives now mm-hmm. because of choices I've made. And I think I've talked about that. There's a kid who recruited me to be his boss at a startup. But it was a long-term kind of like reverse mentorship thing, right? I want my mentorship from people who are smarter than me. And I am not so precious to believe that all of those people are older than me. I think yeah. there's a lot of smarter, more accomplished people who are younger than me. And I, I kind of want to see, and frankly, who look different from me too. I feel like every incremental step you take in your career, you realize how much more you don't know. Yeah, totally. <laughs> and part of the challenge that I think everyone faces, but particularly women, is you don't know what you don't know. And having that sort of cadre of other women around you to tell you, hey, FYI, this is going to be a thing. It primes you to approach those situations better. I can't tell you how many times I've had mentors that I've gone to with what seemed like the biggest challenge and they had one small piece of advice and it just fixed everything. There's just perspective you get from being in business longer or like you said, being in new types of businesses where even if it's younger folks, they're exposed to things that are, are different from the way that you've seen the world. Just as many brains as you can get on an issue as possible, the better the outcome. So Ashley, I want to ask, we've kind of glossed over this, but what is the role of your sexuality being a gay woman in the field? I feel lucky enough that I mentioned earlier, I've never experienced real sexual harassment or sexist behavior. Like I've been told to smile before, but I mean, suck it. (laughs) (laughs) That's the quote. That's the quote for the episode. That is going to be the audiogram quote. But I've never experienced real, true sexual harassment or sexual behavior that's been offensive to me. The same goes for my my sexual orientation. The thing I will say, though, is I really appreciate that there's a new lexicon to describe the queer experience that's becoming more popular today. So words like queer or non-binary or fluid or pansexual, I think these terms... I don't know. I'd love to hear what you guys think too. I think these terms abstract away 
the sex part from sexual orientation, because I can tell you using words like lesbian or bisexual around They're loaded. Yeah. white yeah. businessmen, you can just see the wheels turning. You can see what those terms mean to them, the context in which they're most likely to see those terms, and it's really gross. So having a different set of words to use to describe that experience has been welcome over the past few years. I feel like an interesting parallel, and it's on parallel similarity, tangential similarity, the term African-American versus Black has kind of changed in our society, right? It was when I, I don't know about you guys, but in Alabama growing up, the term Black was a term you didn't use. And African-American became the more accepted term. Yeah. But it packs and unpacks a lot of stuff that isn't accurate, that isn't fair. And recent guests we've been talking to, Sharon, some episodes that haven't aired yet, have said, yeah, Black with the capital B is more important, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to figure out how that connects to kind of what you just said. But I think the evolution of language and acceptance of terms that call it what it is and kind of unpack and pack up the baggage that comes with it. Some of the those uncomfortable gross situations that come from the words themselves, Ashlyn. I have no idea what the point I'm trying to make is, but I I, I just (laughs) see this weird I see this weird parallel between language. And labels. Language and labels and labels. Yeah. Stigmas that are related to the language or the labels. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I think when you're dealing with especially people that you don't know and you've never really worked with before, labels are heuristics that people use to assume what your experiences have been like. So I think the difference between Black and African American, I mean, obviously I don't know, and I would have to ask folks who have lived that experience. Or just listen to our podcast. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what sort of experiences come along with yeah. each of those terms and how they've experienced those terms differently. But yeah, I think generally I've never experienced homophobia in the workplace. I think transphobia is still something that folks are grappling with. And actually, you know what? I want to I want to take my words back because I recently read something that said we should stop calling it a phobia because a phobia is a medical condition whereas you're just an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> Another great quote. I love that. <laughs> well, look, okay. So, I think we figured out how to be successful at work and we've solved sexism and racism. So, I think pretty successful episode. What do you guys think? I think so. <laughs> I know I that was a so. joke, but it was such a bad one. <laughs> Ashlyn, they're all bad jokes. <laughs> That's another thing you can look forward to about being a parent. They are yes. all terrible jokes. Oh, I cannot they're wait dad for jokes. the dad, dad jokes. jokes. Do you guys want to exactly. hear my best dad joke? Yes, go, go for, for it. it. What do you call Harrison Ford drawing a Venn diagram? What? Comparison Ford. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> all right. You're off. We're canceling the episode. <laughs> You have to put your child up for adoption. You are so ready for parenthood. You are so ready. Thank you. I I feel like once you nail the dad jokes, it's like an official rite of passage. Yes, absolutely. Well, what do you think, Sharon? You think Ashlyn's ready for speed round? I think she's ready. All right, Ashlyn, this is the speed round where the questions are not fast ones. (laughs) (laughs) Can you tell us something about you that most people don't expect? I have a really big heart when it comes to my family and friends. I'll basically do anything for them. So people wouldn't expect that from you? I would totally have expected that from you. (laughs) (laughs) 
But okay, fine. Will we accept that? Is that an acceptable answer, Raman? Uh, the dad joke was pretty excellent. Yeah. So I'll let it slide. <laughs> I'll let it slide. Perfect. What is a book, movie, or television show that you would recommend with characters that you can relate to? Right now, The Politician. I think it's the best show that's been released in the past few years. Wow. Fighting words. I already know yeah. what I want to watch now. <laughs> I feel like I'm getting all my TV and movie recommendations from this podcast. Definitely. Already. And they've all been really good. I've actually watched a lot of them. They've been good. <laughs> Again, the other ulterior motive of this show. Mm-hmm. <laughs> What's your favorite mom dish? What is a mom dish? See, like oh my God. The, the, you're a total white person. Maybe yeah. it doesn't apply to... <laughs> Every, I swear to God, I feel like we've only gotten that question from our white guests. <laughs> That's awful. That's not, that can't be true, Roman. Well, I was like, is that something that my mom makes or is that gossip on the street in the mom crowd? <laughs> <laughs> it's the former. It's what your mom yeah. make, what, what's, made what's that for you. Food? The, yeah, yeah, like got it. comfort food. Vegetarian tacos. Wow. Right. You guys were really innovative. Vegetarian tacos. If by innovative, you mean hippie, yes. Yeah. (laughs) It's innovative now. Innovative. (laughs) What's your least favorite food? Eggplant. I think you're either the second or third person to say that on our show. Really? It's going to be a running theme. Yeah. I don't know why. I like eggplant. but Yeah, big eggplant will not be a sponsor of the show, Mm -hmm. I guess. I don't eat meat, so it's my least favorite vegetable, I suppose. Yeah. (laughs) Who is someone out there that you would want to interview on a podcast? Tim Ferriss. My God. He just has so much great advice. I love him. Yeah, he's great. All right. Last question. You ready? Yes. What does being a model minority mean for you? It means shutting up to listen to other people speak because I know what it feels like to not be listened to. That's That's great. Good. Yeah. Well, Ashlyn, ever since the first time I met you, which was like (laughs) just a couple months ago, I was like, you're the kind of person I wanted to interview on a podcast or have a conversation with. And keep being awesome, dude. Thank you. This is so much fun. Thank you. I'm so glad that this podcast exists and it's a new space, a safe space, especially for folks to air their personal experiences. So keep it up. And that's our show. Like what you heard? Please subscribe and rate us on your favorite podcasting platform. For more about this episode, links to things mentioned or to join the conversation, visit modmypod.com. We'd love to hear from you. Now, here's a preview of our next episode. Advocacy will cost you something. It will cost you your pride. It will cost you your comfort, either physical or emotional, financial security. It's not for free. It will cost you something. And so in that moment, when I think about where were the peers, where were my peers, why didn't anyone intervene? Because it's scary, right? It's scary to intervene, especially if it's somebody who's in a position of power that you're going to choose to call out and the power dynamic is real. That's it for now. I've been Roman Segel. And I'm still Sharon Lee Tony. Remember, we're all auto minorities out there. We'll talk to you soon. Mm-hmm.